to Being 11. My name's Amanda Marsh and I'm inviting you to take a journey with everyday people as they recall their pre-teen years, sharing the good, the bad and the cringeworthy. What year was that for you? Yeah, well, thanks, Amanda. Yeah, and welcome to 153 Lake Street, Eden Hope. Thank you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, probably uh, turning 11 was a very, very sad part of my life for a start. Yeah. Right. Uh, I turned 11 on the 22nd of November, uh, 1956. And my father passed away on the 15th of December, 1956. Heart attack. So he, he passed away, <clears throat> you think, from the results of some war injury? Well, well, yeah. He, he had, uh, he was what they call a 39er. So he had six years in the army and uh, he was an English migrant. Came out here in 1928 under uh, what they call the Little Brother Scheme. And, um, yeah, the people that sponsored him out here, um, and Australia was just in the start of the Depression, and it was a farming family just out of Hamilton at a place called Melville Forest, and uh, he was only there a fortnight, and they said to him, well, Bill, you know, things we've sort of hit the wall here. Uh, you, we can only take you back into Hamilton and take her to the railway station and you're on your own. So uh, then he would have been about 18. Oh, yeah, okay. 18. Yeah. 17, 18. So there he was on the uh, railway station uh, as, you know, say, 18-year-old, 17, 18-year-old uh, in a strange country and no, his family were all back in England. Anyway, so... Um, he got work and he actually came to Harrow and he actually, why he came to Harrow, I'll never know, but apparently he met one of his old schoolmates. Neither one of them knew that the other one was out here in Australia. So... What's the chances? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So that was a bit of a... a, um, a uh, well, a community thing and a unbelievable how it happened. But anyway, they turned out to be good mates and uh, they both joined up with the forces after 28, 29 to 39, so they're here 10 years and uh, making a bit of a name for themselves, only as workers, that's all they were, had nothing. And um, any rate, this, this uh, other Englishman that Dad was, a young English bloke, was with Dad and they were fencing and actually I can tell you I drive past the the spot just about every day of the week delivering the mail and I think war was declared on the 23rd of September 1939 mm -hmm. and the mailman went past and he said to these two blokes, Dad and this Algy Lushington, uh, war's been declared and they said, bloody hell. They dropped their tools on the uh, fence line on the side of the road, carved their initials in the tree and walked into Harrow and um, got their papers and signed up wow. and went to war. And uh, so, yeah, Dad did a big stint in the Middle East, Crete, then uh, came back to Australia and then finished up in New Guinea with the uh, fighting the Japanese on the Kokoda Trail. So. 
Yeah, but he got malaria and apparently that knocked his heart around and, yeah, it was just one of those things that happened. And we weren't the only one. There was plenty of other people that happened that way. So that was the start. But so, yeah, basically um, when Dad died and kids were in those days, we were basically always told to be seen and not heard. And I'll never forget it. I remember the day as clear as a bell, the day of his funeral. And I wasn't allowed to go. I was the oldest of three kids at uh, just turned 11. And a real good mate of the family, uh, they were carting hay. And um, it was sheaf hay and all all done with the pitchforks. And a bloody stinking hot day. There's only a few days before Christmas, I might add. And um, I can always remember, and I can still see Bill Carney down on the ground throwing the sheaves up to me. And I'm only an 11 year old kid, and I'm stacking the sheaves on the back of the old trailer, tractor and trailer job. And I can always remember Bill saying to me there, and this was probably, you know, I'll say three o'clock in the afternoon, he said, John, you don't look too good. And believe you me, I bloody wasn't either. I was, well, exhausted really and just heat uh, exhaustion and I can always remember he said because I was too pig-headed to say I wasn't feeling good I thought I was feeling good well you weren't allowed to say it in those days you weren't so he said John you better come down and I'm not feeling too good myself he said I think we'll have a drink of water and of course there was no such thing as coolers in those days or ice it was just the old water bag hanging on the combing rail of the, the trailer so we sat under there for probably 20 minutes and had a drink of water and how are you feeling and oh of course I was feeling good all the time wasn't admitting that I wasn't too good but yeah so away we went and carted home and then my godparents they lived of course religion played a big part in those days and uh, my godparents lived down at Lismore in uh, the western district just north of Geelong and they came and got me and, and I had no idea where I was going, what I was doing. Um, and the next thing, I'm in this hut on their property, and it was about probably oh yeah, half a k from the house. And um, didn't know, n- never met these people before, even though they were my godparents. And um, and they had five or six kids, so we all sort of had to try and assimilate. And they came over and got me and took me back to the house for breakfast. And I thought, well, you know, this didn't happen at, at home. And we were very primitive at home too, I might add. And um, so, and then we had Christmas Day. And I'd never seen Christmas like that before, whereby these three or four families all got together and they had... Christmas trees and carols and presents and all that sort of stuff. Well, we didn't really have that at home. We, um, Dad was a very proud man and so was Mum. And um, we, yeah, we had no running water, no electricity, no sewerage, nothing. Three room, just a three roomed house. And I'm down in, in uh, Lismore and in a big house and lots of people around and, yeah, just sort of really went from a boy to a man <laughs> in, a, in a matter of a fortnight, you know. You, you opened your eyes to the world. Oh, I did it ever. And and it didn't get better either, unfortunately. I am uh, kept down there and I didn't know where mum was. Like I knew we lived in Harrow and we had the farm, but it was very um, primitive farming too, I might add. And um, I never came home. And uh, mum came down 
and the next thing, I'm in Melbourne and mum's taking me into this big store and getting a school uniform. And I didn't know what was, still didn't know why, why I was getting this school uniform. And um, mum had some good friends down there and they could have been relations a long way back. And uh, we used to call them Uncle Jack and Artie Eileen. And Uncle Jack was a, an old sailor of the days of the Windjammers prior 1900. And he's a great old Englishman and uh, very well spoken, but very tactful in everything that he said. And he said to me there when this couple of days before I go to school, and he said, John, you're not going home. Um, your father's brothers and sisters in England, they're going to educate you and you're going to boarding school here in Melbourne to Xavier College. And I thought, what the bloody hell? I'd never bloody heard of Xavier College. I'd never seen a tram. I'd seen the picture of a train. I'd seen an aeroplane flying over. And I had no bloody idea of you know, what was going on. So at any rate, I, um, well, I got through that reluctantly and uh, then I, I learned to travel on the, tra uh, the tram and I used to go out to Uncle Jack and Artie Islands once a fortnight for Sunday lunch from the school, you see, but they had, used to come and get me for a start and then Uncle Jack would take me back on the, on the uh, tram and the bus so that I knew the way to the school and then I could do it in reverse yeah. you know, after a while. So, but I always remember the very, very first time I saw a, a tram coming up the middle of the road, well, yeah, the middle of the road, I suppose, and I thought it was a bloody train. And I thought, what the bloody hell's going on here? Like, we weren't even used to a bitumen road. We only had a gravel track out there, and I thought, we're going to hit this bloody train. So, of course, I was pretty brave, and I got down behind the back seat and bloody hit in there. I no bloody. Oh, hell no, that was no good to me. So, but anyway, I was a very steep learning curve, and uh, so then I came home for the May holidays. Well, I'd never seen my brother or sister or mum for that three months. And um, any rate, I was uh, presented with an axe, and your mother needs some firewood split. Yeah. Right. I, I was a fair lump of a kid, but I spent daylight till dark for the fortnight school holidays splitting firewood in a small billets. Yeah, but yeah. you had massive blisters. Oh, well, you just got, got used to it. Yeah. yeah. And it had to be, they were only foot blocks. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they'd paid someone to come and cut the wood and cart it in, and there was this massive great heap of wood there. So I spent basically seven days a week there um, for the fortnight, daylight till dark, splitting 12 months supply of wood so that mum had wood for the, yeah. for the oven or the stove. And uh, maybe I got a little bit of spare time and I might, might have went and dug out a rabbit burrow or something like that. But that was, that was my uh, first school holidays. And then the second school holidays was in September and mum had probably 800, 900 sheep that had to be shorn. And uh, the locals had organised a family, three brothers, and the oldest bloke, Graham, he was, I think he was about 19, might have been 20, and Arthur was 16, and the youngest brother was Herb, and he was just a little bit younger than me. So they were the two shearers, and Herb and I were the rouseabouts, two 11-year-old kids. 
And uh, Graham could shear a bit. He could shear sort of 80 or 90. And Arthur was only a learner, so he could shear probably 50 maybe. But unfortunately, Graham got the chicken pox. So, and he obviously couldn't shear. So Arthur was there on his own shearing. And of course, the other stand was vacant and Herb and I were having a bit of a go at shearing. Kids, mind you, 11-year-old kids. And... Um, and getting up to all sorts of mischief all the time, you know, fighting and arguing and that sort of stuff. And, you know, Arthur got sick of us the second day and he said, right, you pair of buggers, tomorrow, he said, you're shearing, and he said, I'm going to do the wool. So Herb and I, sure, two 11-year-old kids, and... um pick a sheep up to do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they weren't very big, they were little fine wool sheep, admittedly, but anyway... Um, Herb and I put the day in shearing, and that was on the Friday. And uh, to this very, very day, when we are only talking about it there a couple of weeks ago, um, we got 99 between us, and neither one knows who got the 49 and who got the 50. But So, yeah, that was a story. But So Arthur done the wool, but one of the other funny things that we always remembered and talk about was we had a big old Ronaldson and Tippett wool press, which there's no such thing as hydraulic presses in those days. And you had to run the cables up the side, took onto what they called the monkey, which was the lid that sort of wound down and pressed all the wool into the bale. But, um, and we weren't strong enough to lift the monkey up, so Graham had come up and he'd lift it up and put the monkey on and then we'd put the cables up, hook it on. And then, of course, there was what they called pins and that held the wool in the, the bottom of the box when you wound it up the pole so that it didn't fall out. But, of course, in our excitement, We'd get on the handle and bloody straight up and down, up and down on the handle. And, of course, I uh, didn't pull the pins out, did we? So here the pins are. <laughs> so, of course, we had to get in and in with the sledgehammer then and belt them out and, oh, and Graham would go, oh, you bloody useless buckets. <laughs> so at any rate, and I was telling this story at Herb's 50th wedding anniversary three or four years ago, and people were sort of with their mouths open and shaking their heads, oh, bloody 11-year-old kids, they couldn't, no, they wouldn't be able to work a wool press or shear sheep. And Graham was there and he was just going, they certainly did. Yeah. And Arthur was there too and he said, they certainly did. Then it comes to the uh, the Christmas holidays. Then that was either ring-barking trees or chasing fly-blown sheep. Yeah, you know, like checking the sheep every day for flies and that sort of stuff. And I had an old sheep dog that they got for me called Smokey. Well, Smokey was my best mate. He was a bloody beauty. Wherever I went, walking around the different paddocks, and it was, they weren't open fields like we see today. They were pretty scrubby sort of paddocks, so a sheep could get down anywhere that was fly-blown. And you basically had to walk every square inch of 600 acres to make sure that, you know, you didn't lose a sheep anywhere. And old Smokey and I, like, he'd catch a sheep for me and I'd have a pair of shears and a bottle of fly oil with me and treat the sheep and let him go, or it might be grass seeds in their eyes or something to do that. And then uh, they'd be back and get the axe and start ring barking trees. Yeah. You know, just to try and clear a bit of land. That's so. hard work. Yeah, but boy, do you reckon I look like I've been knocked around? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking I don't know too many 11-year-olds who could, who could even consider doing that now. Well, there wasn't, a, there wasn't, a, there was no such thing as consideration. No, that's... It was just, it was a means to an end, a means to an end. And that was, so that's basically, yeah, an 11-year-old, uh, hated school, bloody, I just, I couldn't understand why I was sent to Melbourne. <laughs> and Uncle Jack always said, 
I don't know why they've got you down here, John. He said you always wanted, and this is latter years he used to say too, but he said you always wanted to be a farmer, you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps, and I did. From that 600 acres, I built it up to 2,000 acres. Oh, well, if you want to get into education, the biggest bloody waste of time I had in my life was going to school. I learned more since I left school. <laughs> Never I did go to school, I can tell you that. Yeah, no, I didn't. Education, two things that I never, ever got on with in my life. One was education and the other one's technology. <laughs> and you've got a phone back. Oh, yeah, I'm getting smart now. I'm very proud of myself that I can get, get around that. All right, well, I'll finish up and I'll ask you the last question and I ask everyone this question. What could... 11-year-old you advise or teach you now? What could an 11-year-old kid today teach me? No, no, no. What, what could I teach? What would 11-year-old you yep. cast your mind back to that boy? Yep. What could he teach you now or advise? Oh, I've got to try and get this in the right perspective. What you're saying is what would an 11-year-old boy of that yep. 70 years ago be able to tell me today yeah. how to live. Well, I, th I think the thing that's lacking today, if I'm, if I'm understanding your question correctly, yeah. is one simple word. Yeah. Start showing some respect. You're the second person today that said that. I don't. Mm. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's, that's well and truly out of control today. Like, I'm not knocking education, but unfortunately, I think because they go to school, uh, they know everything. And don't worry, I thought I knew everything and I didn't, well, I hated school and I still thought I knew everything. But, yeah, I, and, uh, yeah, respect. And, and I, I do get a very, very, uh, I'd say I'm qualified to say that because I drive a lot of school buses in, in the area and I work over in Narracourt as well. I work for a big uh, organisation called Wimber Roadways and I see a lot of kids from all walks of life and the thing that uh, is just no respect, no respect. You can say good morning to them and you might get a grunt out of them or you mightn't even get a, a flash of an eye. They'll just walk straight past and you'll tell them to uh, no rubbish on the floor. If you bring rubbish on, you take rubbish off. And you have a look, you sweep the bus every out every night and there's bloody apple cores and biscuits and wrappers and you name it. That's disappointing. Well, it is, yeah. And yet we say we're in an educated society. But yeah, no, that, and that's, yeah, that's just in the school bus side of things. But You've only got to see them in the street and um, see them at their sports and that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, their language and, yeah, there's just no respect for anything. No respect. Following on from that, that's what 11-year-old or you or you now would tell them. But I want to know what 11-year-old you would tell you. Today. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's something you've lost or you've just stopped doing out of busyness. I don't know. But what what would he tell you to maybe do more of or to do less of? Um Yeah. <sighs> Just try and be, enjoy yourselves. Like try and get the right balance. 
Yeah. Um, enjoy yourselves and do something productive, like whether it be wash the dishes or clean up your clothes and that sort of stuff. Uh, and I see it in my little jobs now of helping people out. And, yeah, you can tell them, but you know full well it just goes, that's why I'm bald. <laughs> so you think you've found that balance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no. Thank you for sharing your story and your time with me, John. It's been fun. And thank you, Amanda. Yeah, enjoyed our talk. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Being 11. If you liked what you've heard today, don't forget to like, subscribe, or visit our website at sofromedia.com to see what else we do.